This is an ABC podcast. In the late 1990s, Glenn Jarvis was an Australian living in London, working for a giant American energy and investment corporation, right in the centre of town, right in the middle of a bull market. Life was exhilarating. He made lots of friends. But after a while working in the finance department, Glenn began to notice some very odd transactions. Gigantic amounts of money were flooding in and out that just couldn't be accounted for. And this was so perfectly strange because the company, a corporation named Enron, was regularly named as the most admired American corporation in the world. Glenn took it up with his bosses, but they didn't want to know. And that was odd too, because the company's slogan was, ask why. Glenn's reputation at work changed, and his life began to unravel under the hideous stress of it all. He had a psychotic episode and spent the next two years in and out of mental health institutions in Australia and in the UK. His family stuck by him, but things were difficult, and he ended up in supported accommodation. After a few years, and after finally accepting the truth of his diagnosis, Glenn began a slow and painstaking climb back into an entirely different life with the help of some good people at the local Bolo. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Richard. You grew up in Queenbian and you had a stint in your childhood on Christmas Island. What was Christmas Island like as a kid, as you remember it? It was fun. Um, a lot of running around in the jungle, land crabs everywhere. The stench when they all got run over <laughs> right outside the school right. was horrendous. The food was fantastic. No sausage rolls and pies at the canteen. It was all curry and lots of friends with the Chinese and Malay community as well. Yeah, it was great. I wonder then what it was like for you to come back to living in Queenbian then as a teenager. It was a bit of a shock to the system. I wasn't a great sportsman or anything so it was, that was pretty big at Queenbian High, so I was more of a hang-out-with-the-girls-down-at-the-music-rooms kind of a guy. Um, wrote a bit of poetry, but I had some good friends at Queenbian High, and um, it's funny, a lot of us are still really good friends from back then. I had part-time jobs, so I used to work at Cannon's Food Barn Fishwick, throwing boxes around on the <laughs> weekends. A lot of my friends used to ride motorbikes out the back of Queenbian, there was a lot of, like, as we got older, cruising around in cars at night. Was it a pretty car-obsessed culture? It was, yeah. There was a lot of... Someone once said that um, cars are a very safe topic of conversation in <laughs> Queanbeyan. What were you planning to do when you left school then? I was planning during my school years to become a pilot. I'd read a lot of Biggles books when I was a young fella, <laughs> and I kind of liked his world weary attitude to life, even though he was only about 19 or something in the books. When you went to uni, what did you study then? Economics. Was your plan to be in and business or to be an economist or something like that? I didn't have much of a plan. I could never really envisage myself being an economist. I didn't. I was a bit lost when I was a young bloke. I didn't really belong to any kind of group at uni or school. I kind of flitted between them all. The car guys, the, the country boys at uni, 
a few of the blokes who like to, you know, smoke a bit of pot at uni. I used to hang around with them a little bit as well. So I was kind of just all over the place a bit, I suppose, when I was a young fella. So once you got out of uni, what was your, your first job then? My first real job was working in a store in Sydney for a company that um, built the Foxtel cable TV network down in Sydney and around the country as well called Vision Stream. It was a fantastic job. All the streets were being dug up and duct was being put under the streets, but being a cable hauler itself was a very cruisy job. We had a quota of work that we had to do per day. It was like 200 metres per man. And um, on a very good day, you could knock that over in half an hour and be off to the beach or wherever. You could do a so, day's work in half an hour? That sounds like an amazing job. What did, so what did you do with all the free time? Well, the first time I only spent <laughs> half an hour at work, I went home and I sat on my couch at Panania and I thought, what am I going to do, exactly as you said? So I went down to Cronulla and I went to the beach. But eventually I just decided I was going to get into sailing, so I joined a sailing school and I had a lot of lessons and then... They said we'd run twilight races down at Rushcutters Bay, so I started doing that. So my typical day would be I'd knock off work, I'd go to the beach, then I'd read all the papers and have coffee in Newtown and then I'd be the first person at the yacht club for the races, the twilight races in the afternoon. It was like the happiest days of my life, honestly. It was fantastic. What did your fellow sailors make of you? Did they think of you were a gentleman of leisure? You were a man of, of um, inherited means, a, a young aristocrat, given that you clearly hardly needed to do any work in order to spend a life sailing around Sydney Harbour. There was quite a bit of interest in, <laughs> at the yacht club in what was going on where I worked, but I just got on sailing pretty much. I used to sail on one boat, it was called Wind Charmer, and WC for short, and the women on that boat used to call themselves the Wicked Chicks. So I was the only bloke, so I was a wicked chick, and it was fun. So when did the cable people twig that their their workers were living this extraordinary life? I don't know, I think it, was, it would have been around 1996, probably around the time John Howard came to power. We got sold to Leighton's. And someone decided to come up with the idea of having an incentive scheme at work. So instead of just doing your 200 metres per man, after you'd done that, you got paid per metre. So, yeah, output went up quite considerably (laughs) after that. So, Glenn, how do you go from there to going to London and getting a job with mega corporation energy giant Enron? How did that happen? And I had a friend who'd moved to London. He'd met a Scottish girl and decided to go over there. And I was getting a bit sick of Sydney, so I just thought I might as well head over and I've got somewhere to stay. So I arrived at Heathrow Airport. I got off the plane. I rang my friend and he said, I can't believe you're here. I was talking to my boss about you today and there's a job going where I work. And I said, where do you work? He said, oh, for a company called Enron. So basically I arrived on a Tuesday night or Wednesday night, and I started work on the Monday. Enron, as I said, was often spoken of as the most admired corporation in America in those days. Their CEO and chair were were friends of President Bush. 
they were often on the cover of Fortune magazine, the chair Ken Lay and the CEO Jeffrey Skilling. They were often lauded as the smartest guys in the room. And I can never quite get my head around it, but is it is it right to say that they were not only an energy corporation, but they were also dealing in energy credits? They were somehow running a kind of a market in energy. Have I got that right, Glenn? You have got that right. But a lot of people, including myself, don't really understand a lot of the things they were trying to do. There were things they were trying to do with weather. They were trying to set up an um, online broadband distribution system. But, yeah, they had some really what you'd call clever ideas for how to make money. And what was the nature of your work in, this, in the company of all these suits and fast cars in London? I was just uh, counting the beans in the finance department. I'd um, get their bank statements every day and I'd enter into the accountancy package where all the money went to and where all the money came from. And then at the end of the month, I'd have to do these massive bank reconciliations, which are automated now, but we used to have to do them manually back then. A bank controls clerk. Where were the corporate offices in London? Well, eventually they built their own building up near um, Buckingham Palace or, or Victoria Station. But when I was there, we had one building on Millbank. It was kind of across the road from the park next to the House of Lords. And then another building just down around the corner on Horse Ferry Road next to the MI5 building. Yeah, it was nice. You could go down and have your lunch into the park next to the House of Lords and with the Thames flying by, it was just a beautiful location. Given that you're working in accounts, what was it like to observe Enron growing so quickly, having all this investment money, all these gigantic projects taking place in the most admired American company in the world? It was amazing working at Enron. It was um, just party time in a major way. And the transactions were growing nearly exponentially. When I first started, some of the bank statements I were getting were only half a page long, but then six months later, they'd be like three pages long, four pages long, so they were trading a lot more. What kind of anomalies were you beginning to see in some of these account documents that were coming your way? Well, what I was noticing were a couple of things. Every couple of months, an amazing sum of money, I think in the order of about $1.5 billion US dollars would arrive in one of their bank accounts. And I'd have to um, obviously account for that somehow. And I'd ask around and I'd say, does anyone know about this amount of money? It's quite a staggering sum. And there'd be like silence. People wouldn't know. So eventually I'd get someone on the phone who did know and then I looked at my boss across the table and he said, if I was you, I wouldn't tell anyone about that. Just call that funding. So they're a bit um, hesitant for people to know about that. Plus on another one of the bank wrecks, there was about a gazillion pounds or dollars. I can't remember now. But that was, um, I asked my boss about that and he said, oh, that's debt. So... I accidentally showed that to the wrong person in the company once and he had a freak out about Enron having a gazillion pound overdraft as well, so it wasn't just me. When you say gazillion, is that like a... I, I, it's what, an what, official Enron term. It's in the um, 
it's like just means like a very large number because you're just regularly seeing staggering amounts of money coming and going. But yeah, I remember the debt was pretty big, but maybe not quite as big as the funding number. How old was your boss at the time? Well, when I first started, I had a very nice boss called Phil. And um, a couple of the guys I was working with were giving him quite a hard time, so we got switched over to another boss called Michelle. Yeah, she would have been about 40, but the guy who really knew what was going on in the department was 19 years old. There's a documentary about Enron called The Smartest Guys in the Room, and Enron... Early on, once Jeffrey Skilling took over as CEO, started practicing a thing called mark-to-market accounting, which was they were reporting their income based on expected profits. They were sort of banking that and reporting that, and the share price sort of rose accordingly. And this was all being done within a very opaque system. Was this something a guy at your level was aware of, this mark-to-market accounting practice that was going on? No, I wasn't aware of that at all. I was basically aware of the very the raw numbers coming in, the, the numbers on the bank statements, the numbers on the bank recs. But it was hard to tell exactly what was going on. I don't think a lot of people in the finance department knew what was going on. Were you told not to talk about what you were seeing? Yeah, I was, particularly with the funding. I remember the second time it happened, I knew where to book it in the accounts by then, and I did that. I just booked the transaction to the right account code, and later on the trading accountant rang me up and said, how did you know to do that? How do you? And it was just the account code. They were completely paranoid about this funding. So, yeah, I started feeling like I think I turned around to the guy who helped me get the job after that, and I said to him, I think we're looking at another bond corporation here. And he told me to shut up. So, yeah, I was, even though, I'm, as I say, I'm not a very good accountant, I've actually failed it at university. Even I could tell by some of the numbers I was seeing that things possibly weren't too healthy. Even I remember, and I pay very little attention to the financial pages, but even I remember at the time the leaders of Enrod were being hailed in the late 90s as geniuses. Like, they were incredibly brilliant people. It must have been very, very weird. On the one hand, you're seeing things in black and white on a balance sheet in front of you that just don't tally with everyone in the world, including presidents, saying that these people are geniuses and they've found new ways to make money. Was there a bit of that? Was there a bit, were you feeling a bit, uh, I don't know, the stress of that? If you can see something here that doesn't accord with the Emperor's New Clothes culture that's around Enron at the time. Yeah, it was like that. One of my favourite sayings is life wasn't meant to make sense. And, yeah, there was a lot of stuff at Enron that just didn't seem to make sense. I mean, I had a bit of a background in broadband and I remember when they set up their broadband division, they put an accountant in charge of it and two receptionists and I kind of looked at that department and I thought, you guys are going to struggle because um, there's so much politics in the world of broadband. Yeah, there was all kinds of stuff happening over there. So given that you're in a position in London where you're seeing these terrible, shocking anomalies and you're bringing them up, what did that do to your 
position in the company, your reputation, the, the kind of friendliness with which you were being greeted or the absence of that? It gradually started to deteriorate, but I had a funny relationship in that office because of my lack of background in accounting. I was kind of a bit of a cross. I mean, between one guy in my department used to call me Forrest Gump, which I think was fairly <laughs> derogatory. Oh, right. That's actually not that funny. So that's, so that's it. You were being treated, starting to be treated like the village idiot. The yeah, guy. yeah. But I had another guy who came from head office and he had a really swanky apartment right near the House of Lords and he treated me like I was a bit of a sage. He, he'd asked me all sorts of questions like, did I want to go to the Middle East and help them buy oil? And I said, no, I was quite happy in London and should we get more Americans over here because they work a bit harder than the English? And I said, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And on one hand, I felt like the village idiot, but on the other hand, I was treated like I was, had quite a bit to offer as well, but I didn't really understand where my mate Philippe was coming from when he was asking me questions like that. What happened when you decided that you needed a holiday from the stress of all this, Wayne? Well, I'd had a couple of holidays. Um, I'd been skiing in France and I had a mate who wanted to travel around Italy for two weeks. But the firm were um, introducing a new accountancy package and they just said no one can have holidays for the next three or four months we're doing this. So I rang my mate and I said, look, I think I'm going to struggle because the company have said no one can have holidays. And he said, well, what are you, a man or a mouse? So I went, oh, well, I think I'll tell them I'm going to resign if I can't take my holidays. And I ran it past my friend from head office, Philippe, and he said, if I was you, I'd be taking your holidays. So I thought, that's it, I'm off to Italy for two weeks. And I came back and when I was away, I kind of thought, I might have done the wrong thing here. I might be in a bit of strife when I got back to work, but I wasn't really prepared for what happened when I did get back to work. What did you see when you got back to work? Well, usually when I'd taken breaks from work before I'd end on, someone, my 19-year-old colleague, had covered my work while I was away. But in this instance, he decided not to do that. So I had an incredible amount of work to do in probably... Uh, two or three days before month's end. So I was doing data entry on the weekend and after hours and working unbelievably hard. And also I was in quite a bit of strife in the office as well. People were starting to get a bit sort of like difficult and aggressive with me and I was becoming a bit unstable so I was being a bit difficult and aggressive back. Yeah, it was very uncomfortable what was it that finally pushed you to resign from Enron? Oh, I didn't resign. I just walked out. I, I came into work after a weekend and I'd been having these a lot of questions being asked at work about can we see your CV, who are you, who are your friends. Who are your yeah, friends? Yeah, yeah, they were a bit paranoid about who my friends in London were. So there was all of that. And then I came into work on a Monday and instead of getting about five emails over the weekend, I'd had about a hundred. And I looked at about the first five or six of them and, yeah, I felt very uncomfortable at that point. And I just walked out and I looked down at the Thames 
And I thought, I think I'd better go back to Australia. So I just kind of took off. But the emails were kind of pretty disturbing. There were a lot of scanned official looking documents. And the one that really disturbed me was like, it was graphics. It was like a camera which turned around and flashed at me. And yeah, that really scared me. I put my head on the desk and someone said, you're all right, Glenn. And I said, I've just got to get out of here. So that's what I did. What do you recall of your first proper psychotic episode after that, Glenn? Yeah, it's hard to tell. All this sounds a bit like just like my descent into madness, but I reckon I became properly psychotic probably a day, a day and a half after I walked out of Enron. Became completely delusional and I started hallucinating and kind of hearing voices, not very loud ones. Yeah. Was that experience terrifying or kind of thrilling and exciting? A bit of both. Yeah, that's a very perceptive question because it was it was a bit of both. It was terrifying. Like I thought people across the street in the flat were um, monitoring me somehow so I went over there and it was like I was on some kind of a drug. I once watched a documentary about this drug called Angel Dust or PCP. It was like I had this incredible strength and I was just trying to kick down the door of this flat across the road. That was pretty terrifying. The thing is, you might have thought at the time that you were being paranoid about Enron, but you weren't. We now know it was a gigantic house of cards and the company collapsed in America's biggest corporate collapse a year or two after you left. You were not paranoid at all about Enron. Everything you'd seen or your concerns were, were true, if anything, worse than what, what you'd observed. Is there an irony in there? I don't know. What do you think about all that now, Glenn? It was very definitely interesting times. I mean, some of my psychosis was just being me, me being psychotic, but... Yeah, I definitely felt like there was a lot of stuff going on. So I ended up having three psychotic episodes. The first two I kind of thought, did something occur to me or something like that overseas? And I thought, yeah, maybe it had, maybe they'd got at me at work somehow. But by the time I had my third episode back in Australia, um, I hadn't been overseas. I'd just stopped taking my medication, so I, I just figured out However this happened, I've got a problem and I've just got to deal with it now. You said you had become paranoid that the people across the road were trying to watch you and you sort of went around and kicked the door in. Did that get you arrested? It didn't get me arrested, although I was arrested in the end. Eventually I made my way to North London where I had some of the friends from back in Australia that Enron were interested in and I went to their place and they went home, so... I was in a bar because it was quite cold and two police came and arrested me and they took me to a police station where I was assessed and then let go. Then I somehow ended up on a road that runs right around London in the service station and two police just belted in the door and capsicum sprayed me and then I was taken to my first psychiatric unit. What diagnosis were you given? I was in three psychiatric units in London. I can't remember much of the first one. The second one, 
I didn't really speak to a doctor there, but by the third one I spoke to a psychiatrist who said schizophrenia, more than likely schizophrenia. I think they're reluctant to give you an, a diagnosis after your first episode of psychosis, but yeah, yeah, he definitely mentioned schizophrenia in my discharge summary. And what did you think when you heard that word? Did you believe it? Initially, I didn't believe it. A lot of people don't. I just thought it had all got on top of me at work. I was still paranoid about what had happened at work. Were you frightened by that diagnosis? I was frightened by that diagnosis because a lot of the stats surrounding that, like there's a horrible suicide rate for people with schizophrenia. I didn't know much about it at the time, I have to admit, but I, I didn't want to have schizophrenia, that's for sure. I'd want to avoid that if I could and that label. But um, my parents came and got me and took me back to Australia and I kind of just gradually recovered. So, yeah, I didn't think I had schizophrenia at all. I stopped taking my medication and I seemed to be fine. listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. When you said that once you got back, you felt like you'd made a recovery and you went off your medication. Were you taking it sporadically or not at all? Yes, sporadically. But I did gradually recover to the point when it's probably not the brightest thing that I ever did. I'd spent some time in a psychiatric unit in Goulburn as well, but I went back to the UK. I just felt like I'd had such a bad time in that psychiatric unit in Goulburn. I thought, well, I don't know which is worse, Australia or the UK. So I thought, I'm going to go back to the UK. I think I've got a few people I want to say a few things to back over there. So I went back to the UK and I got a job and I moved in with a guy from Enron. didn't take too long and I had another psychotic episode. Did you ever deal with case officers at that time that were helpful to you, that had some insight into what you were going through? I think after my second episode, I went to Queanbeyan Mental Health and I'd been quite bad to them before. Like, I'd go in and just tell them to jump in the lake or worse, words to that effect but a lot worse and I went in one day and this guy came walking down the hall and I could just tell straight away as soon as I clapped eyes on him that this was a good fella and yeah, it proved to be true. What did you like so about the him? Case, the way he walked and his smile and his handshake and just he just seemed to be a really warm and genuine fella and I think I was ready to start talking to a case manager by then and that he was such a good bloke. We just uh, used to talk about rugby a lot for a while. I didn't tell him what had happened to me in the UK, but he told me that I'd had psychotic episodes and it was likely I had schizophrenia, so I thought I'd better start listening at this stage. So I started taking my medication there for a while. And, yeah, we got on well. He used to come to my parents' house instead of me having to go into um, hospital in Queanbeyan to see him. So 
Yeah, I like that as well. Is there something in the fact that you had the friendship first before you had to have that first before you were ready to listen to take his advice on taking your medications? Um, it helped. There are a lot of nice people who work on the mental health team in Queanbeyan. There always have been over the years. But he just seemed to go that extra yard with me, which I liked. And plus we had interests in common with sailing. He also used to do a bit of sailing and with the football. And, yeah, he was just really helpful for me. Were you getting some insight by watching uh, the, the other people in the unit? Yeah, I sometimes think that's the point of those units. They put you in there so that eventually after you've been in there enough times you kind of just like assimilate that knowledge that you've got a psychiatric diagnosis because there's not a lot of talk from the professionals in the mental health unit a lot of the time. Yeah, that's the way you learn more than anything from the other people on the ward, which is a funny thing to say, but yeah, a few other people I know in my boat have said that. The thing about schizophrenia is that its symptoms appear so publicly. It's it's enacted so publicly and sometimes it freaks people out. Does that mean schizophrenic people are more likely to run into the criminal justice system as a result of that? Well, there are a lot of people with um, mental health diagnoses in jail and I definitely certainly was picked up by the police a number of times doing all kinds of stuff, but luckily I managed to avoid jail but um, unfortunately for a friend of mine with schizophrenia who um, was a bit of a mentor of mine, he ended up in jail, had a terrible time. Yeah, it definitely does happen. So once your mind cleared up a bit while on medication, once that happens typically, do you then have to sort of come to terms with what's been happening to you over the however long, however many months and years that have been passed in and out of uh, the psychosis of schizophrenia? Yeah, I remember after my third episode, I ended up in supported accommodation in Queanbeyan and that was quite a, a learning experience for me because I'd had it pretty good at my parents' place before that. But yeah, I was just on the disability pension and I'd started smoking again at that stage and like a lot of people with schizophrenia do. And I was drinking a bit and I had bills to pay and I was cold and I was hungry and I was alone. And, yeah, that was really tough times for me there for a while. But what helped was um, the first people to reach out for me were the other people in Queanbeyan with schizophrenia and bipolar and people who'd been part of the mental... Well, with the mental health service for a long time and they reached out to me and, yeah, that was good. Do... Friendships formed that you'd formed before your psychosis surfaced, do they tend to fall away? Yeah, they do. Tim once told me after I had an episode that every episode you have, you tend to lose about a third of your relationships. So I suppose after about three, you, you don't have many relationships left after that. So how did you get a job after having gone through these episodes and then being on regular medication? Yeah. When I was living in the supported accommodation, there was a support worker there called Tracy. And when I'd been looking for work. I'd been um, picking up glasses at the local leagues club and 
going to Centrelink looking for work and Tracy said there's a job going at the hospital that I think you might be suitable for and it was as a consumer advocate part-time a couple of days a week. So consumer is what they call a person with mental illness in the health service. So I applied and I got it, which was a big surprise to me that I got that job. Yeah, I worked for five years as a consumer advocate. That was fantastic for me. What sort of an insight does it give you into humanity? I said, I know that's a big question, but having gone from the highly paid steroidal world of international finance to living in supported accommodation, working with people who are suffering from such things like yourself. In some ways, it might seem like a smaller life, but in other ways, it might seem like a much larger one as well. What, what do you think about that, Glenn? Well, the thing I like about Queanbeyan is that you can trust your mates in Queanbeyan, and it is a bit of a smaller life in some ways. Not so many holidays in Europe and things like that, but the south coast is just down the road, which is probably one of the nicest places on the, the planet. And... Yeah, I really enjoyed trying to help people with mental illness. As a consumer advocate, it was kind of difficult because you're stuck in this position where the mental health service, they want to provide a crisis management service, but the consumers or people with mental illness want a more therapeutic, holistic service. So that was difficult, but I did have a few wins in my advocacy days. Then there was the self-help rehab program you invented for yourself at the local bowling club, the local bolo. How did you sort of creep into that? Yeah, well, I suppose you might have gathered from my uni days and all my stories of Enron that I'd always liked to be, and there happened to be this bolo straight across the road from the supported accommodation, so I used to go over there with another resident, and I was just feeling, uh, although I really had that connection with the other people with mental illness I needed. I couldn't sit around in that yard and talk about community treatment orders and medication for the rest of my life. So I went over there and there was an older fellow who really liked to drink, who just decided that I seemed to be like a reasonable fellow, even though uh, a lot of people were saying, oh, here's this fellow with mental illness. And... Um, yeah, he started talking to me and that kind of led to another person started talking to me and then gradually I saw a fellow in there with a squash tracksuit on and he actually lives with me at the moment but he um, said, well, come and play comp squash with me. So I ended up playing comp squash and it kind of snowballed. So I had my friends at the bowler and then friends at squash and I'm still good friends with a lot of those people now. It seems like you've got a... You've got a talent for making friends. Do you think of it like that? I do now. Not so much when I was younger. I was a bit, um, yeah, a bit harder to connect with when I was younger. But, yeah, I think I've developed that skill. I had to. Yeah, I had to develop that skill. And I enjoy it now. I've nearly practically forgotten everything I learned at university and school, but... Yeah, I'm a, a real people person now. I can I get on with most people and, yeah, I enjoy having that skill. I'm just thinking about those people at the bolo. You know, those institutions of sort of quiet sociability in Australia, they've been disappearing over the last 20, 30 years or so. They seem to have all these benefits that 
aren't always immediately obvious for people in their lives. Yeah, there are all kinds of characters at the Queen Bee and Bolo, and it was a good place to just go sit and be and have a beer and feel comfortable and warm for a while and just have that companionship. But also there were just some people there who were kind of wonderful in their unique ways. Like when I first got there, I said to a fellow, I kind of thought it was a bit of a down-at-heel place there for a while, but then I just kept meeting these colourful characters. I met a fellow there called Bill, and he joined the Royal Navy in Britain when he was 15 years old, and he started telling me his stories, and I thought, oh, I think this guy is pulling my leg a bit. But I went to his 80th birthday and I met all his friends who were called... Darvel and the Gurkha and all this kind of thing. And, um, yeah, we had a great friendship after that. Like you say, the next step was to conquer the world of ACT squash. Tell me how far you were able to get with that. Well, I was always like a lower division squash player, but even at the lowest divisions, a good competition squash player is always going to be pretty tough to handle for just a social squash player which I'd been previously. So, yeah, I caught some dreadful hidings for a while, but um, gradually I just lifted my game and um, I ended up playing 300 games of comp squash for Queen Bion. And I suppose after the first 100 games or so, yeah, I started to garner quite a bit of respect in the squash circles. I'm not exactly sure why. Perhaps people knew my background and thought it was pretty cool to see me out there having a go at squash. So just talking to you, it seems like two of the key factors in your recovery was one was to take your medication regularly, second was the kind of quiet sociability of the bolo. What other factors do you want to attribute to your recovery plan? Well, I kind of like um, developed my own psychosocial rehabilitation program. At one stage I saved up quite a bit of money and I bought myself a camper van and um, I did some really fun stuff in that camper van. I had it for about nine years before I crashed it on the way up to Threadbo. But um, I'd just take that thing down the south coast and camp down there and wake up next to the water and go to the beach and all the kind of stuff that I used to do when I was at Vision Stream back in Sydney that I knew was good for me and my mental health. Go to the beach, travel, go around Tasmania. So I had that. And a lot of people over the years seem to go out of their way to help me. And so there's be far too many people for me to thank on this program, but I think a lot of them would know who they were. So, yeah, I was just lucky. And I always knew because I'd had some tough times before and come through that I could do the same thing if I had the right strategies in place. So that's what I did, even though they seemed like I had to save up for that camper van for about three years, but once I got the idea in my head, yeah, I just did it. And work has been another fantastic thing for me. I became a mental health worker after my consumer advocate days and just helping other people. What's the nature of that work? It's general support work, so you can do everything from hanging someone's curtains to taking them to see their psychiatrist, just helping people live in the community. Given that you seem to get some relief from the bush and from the coast, do you take them out there as well? I do. 
I recently started working for a smaller disability service in Queanbeyan and they're quite keen for me to take people on little holidays either to the coast or up into the mountains. So, yeah, I really enjoy that. There's not enough of that, I don't think. Um, a lot of the um, NDIS providers are still a little bit risk-adverse, I find. Yeah, working for the smaller service, they're just a little bit more nimble and flexible, which I think NGOs were always meant to be before they become a bit huge sometimes and a bit more risk-averse. Tell me a bit about the place where a lot of your clients live, a place called Home in Queanbeyan. Yeah. When I was a consumer advocate about 10 years ago, a local Catholic priest and some of his parishioners came up with the idea that they wanted to build a home in Queanbeyan for people living with schizophrenia and other mental illnesses, just somewhere where they wouldn't be alone or hungry or cold, which was happening a lot and probably still happening for people with schizophrenia, people struggling to get by on welfare. So um, they did. There was quite a bit of resistance to it to the idea initially in various quarters, but they established this place and it's just going fantastically now. What do people often get wrong about schizophrenia? I think the perception of people with schizophrenia is that we're a scary bunch of people. I mean, when you're unwell, you can do and say things are a bit wacky and a bit scary, but... When people um, receive treatment and are stabilised, people with schizophrenia are probably some of the nicest, most humble people you can meet. And they'd give you the shirt off their back if they could to help you out if you're going through tough times with the same circumstances. I've had people on the program years ago telling me stories of, this has happened a few times now, of how schizophrenia is dealt with in traditional societies in places like Papua New Guinea and in the South Pacific. And it's often given spiritual causes, as you would expect. But the way such societies often help people or treat people or deal with people who are going through one of these episodes is to treat them like it's something, first of all, that can happen to absolutely anyone in the village. It's seen as that, for a start. You're not a, a kind of a different category of person as a result of that. People are often sequestered in a hut for however many months, but people are coming to them all the time to talk to them and bring them food and to just wait out. Like it's some kind of long, I don't know, like the flu or something. A psychotic episode is seen as being like a long illness that someone will eventually recover from, but with the help of everyone in the village. What do you think of that? I think that's a much better idea than what happens in our society. There's a lot of blame and shame that tends to go with having a diagnosis like schizophrenia. With us, I think that approach sounds a lot better. Your schizophrenic breakdown, like I said, it happened while you were at Enron, but it wasn't a paranoid delusion. It was a place that was being run by crooks, lies and charlatans, and Enron collapsed spectacularly two years after you, after you left. How do you look back on that now? Well, I don't look back on it a lot these days. Um, some of what happened to me was pretty traumatic, so I went and had some treatment called EMDR, which is for post-traumatic stress disorder. And I had a lot of the memories I had from back then reprocessed. And, yeah, I try not to think about it, but 
Yeah, the thought of this interview and talking about that has been making me think about it a bit recently. It's like that novel that begins, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, because that ended on some of the stuff I used to do, the travel and the nights out and things like that. It was, like, fantastic. It was wonderful working there. But, yeah, obviously things went pear-shaped in a big way and I don't enjoy thinking about that at all very much. Those older people in the bolo who reached out to you and were happy to have you with them, a lot of older people there and they're from a different generation they might have seen stuff that people who'd grown up in more prosperous times wouldn't have seen. What do you see in them that's worth remembering, I think? What's worth emulating? What qualities do you like about those people? Yeah, just the generosity of spirit and what you said, they have been through a lot. Like, I think my friend Bill fought all the way through World War Two, and they just don't care about labels as much. They're more prepared to take you as they find you. I think there should be a program for people with schizophrenia where they get introduced to older people because you find that older people are kind of marginalised as well in a lot of ways. I remember Bill had kind of lost a lot of his money and he was living in his cave under his daughter's house and he probably didn't have a lot of people to speak to as well. So it was good having that relationship. We both got a fair bit out of it, I think. And it's been wonderful to speak with you. Thank you very much for sharing your story. You're welcome, Richard. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, it's Elizabeth Coolass here. If you're looking for another ABC podcast filled with fantastic true stories, I'd love it if you'd try listening to mine. It's called Days Like These. You will find laughs, you will find danger, heartbreak, triumph, love, all the good stuff. These are real Australian stories and everyone comes with a little twist. Just search for Days Like These in your favourite podcast app.